Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and it's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. really well done the first time. It's not broken. Stop trying to smash it. I'm always intrigued to see what it is that people are going to do with something that's already been done before. I hate remakes. I love remakes. Welcome, everybody, to episode 11 of I Hate Love Remakes. I am Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. 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 Hi. See, now, if only Harry Selick had directed the remake instead of Rob Zombie. Eh, or at least written the screenplay. Well, then again, he did Monkey Bone. Uh, don't make me cry. <laughs> Not yet. Anyway, we're being joined by a very special guest today. Everyone, please welcome Lori Bowen. Hello, everybody. Hello. So, Laura, you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I'm an independent horror filmmaker. I've done about five or six short horror films. So the new one coming out is called Just Us. It makes its premiere on uh, October 9th at the Enzian Film Slam in Orlando. You can find out more about what I do and all my little eccentricities by going to kimyu-films.blogspot.com. Okay. We'll definitely put a link to that and uh, and the shorts that you have available online in our show notes. Thank you. Now, we asked this of all our guests, so we have to ask you, what is your opinion in general when it comes to remakes? They're inferior. The main reason is these filmmakers and writers who decide to do these remakes are not the people who are writing the films originally. You know, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, they all were written at a specific time in a specific mindset by a specific person. So what I see remakes as is it's a fan who has some money telling their version of the story. Sometimes you get something good, like John Carpenter's Thing. Other times you get not good, like, let's say, Clash of the Titans. <laughs> <laughs> That's my general feeling on the matter. There are some good remakes, but on the whole, they tend to be inferior. Okay. And uh, since this is part three of a series we're doing on John Carpenter remakes, what are your impressions of John Carpenter as a filmmaker? I like him. He goes at things very simplistically, and I think that adds more to the mystery and to the horror. You know, he doesn't go over the top with slam zooms and rapid cuts, you know, like a lot of filmmakers these days. He just long takes, usually because of budget concerns, he would have to just take this long take and hope that it worked out. And I think that adds so much more tension to a scene than, you know, rapid cutting and dizzying camera moves, you know. You can be inventive with your camera angles, but to disorient the audience in a negative way impacts your film in a negative manner. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So, Evie, do you want to tell us what film we're going to be covering? No, but okay. Um, we're doing the original Halloween from 1978, and then the Rob Zombie remake slash reimagining from 2007. And just as a note to our listeners, this is going to be the start of where we're going to begin breaking our episodes in half to kind of give each film its own episode, just so our episodes don't quite run on as long as they have been. And that should make it a little easier to download and listen to. 
And if that doesn't work, then a killing spree? <laughs> <laughs> That's my plan. Possibly, just as long as it's not directed by Rob Zombie. Oh, God, don't even, don't even. Well, let's start with the 1978 version of Halloween, which was directed by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. The night before Halloween, Michael Myers escapes from Smith's Grove Sanitarium and makes his way back to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he stabbed his sister to death 15 years ago when he was only six. On his trail is his psychiatrist, Samuel Loomis, who tries to get the unconcerned sheriff to take the looming threat of the returned killer seriously. Meanwhile, teenager Laurie Strode keeps noticing a pale figure watching from a distance, but her friends Annie and Linda keep brushing it off as they focus more on how to work their boyfriends into their evening of babysitting. That night, Laurie is babysitting Tommy Strode while Annie watches Lindsay Wallace across the street. Annie drops Lindsay off with Laurie in the hopes of having the Wallace house to herself, but before she can pick up her boyfriend, Annie is killed by Michael. Linda and her boyfriend show up at the Wallace house and drink and have sex before both are also killed by Michael. Lori grows concerned about her friends and heads over to the Wallace house where she finds their bodies in the master bedroom and is attacked by Michael. Michael chases Lori back to the Doyle house. She seemingly kills him several times, but he keeps coming back to attack again and again. During one final attack, Loomis shows up and empties a revolver into Michael, who falls out a window. When Loomis looks outside, Michael's body is gone. So Evie, do you recommend this movie? Yes, I do. It's a really well-written movie and very interestingly shot. There are little things that if this were not a good movie, like there's obviously like little technical things that could really not work if the movie was not working. But because the movie is so good, I kind of just completely glossed over it. Also, you have Jamie Lee Curtis as just a very strong leading female character. And you have, I think it was Nick Castle as the shape. And he is terrifying because I had no idea what he was as a kid, and I still kind of don't. Laurie, do you recommend this movie? Absolutely. The simplicity, again, of the plot of not knowing everything about Michael, because it makes it easier for you to put somebody else in that mask. When you know everything about the character, it's harder to imagine that true terror that you would feel. You know, it could be your English teacher behind that mask. It could be you behind that mask. Mm. And I think that's far more frightening than a boy killed in a lake, like for Jason. Mm -hmm. He's average height, average build. He's just a guy. And he snapped. And that's so powerful. And you've got some great performances. It has some dated moments, if all you know is CG. But on the whole, it's an amazing film. I also highly recommend this film. It is just so cleanly, so precisely put together. The cinematography is so sharp with such great use of empty space in this almost desolate town and mixed with the constant repetitive score just builds this great looming atmosphere where you know this film is going to go into a very dark, very violent place, but it takes so long to get there and yet it doesn't draw it out to the point where it feels boring because it gives you characters to attach to. It, Despite the fact that there are some slightly fantastical elements in terms of Michael, it plays it in such a grounded and restrained way that there's so much stark realism to this film. It feels like both a fairy tale, but also like it could actually happen in the neighborhood next door. Great performances. It's just, it's so well done. I can't recommend this film highly enough. It was one of the first horror movies I ever watched as a kid, and I've been fascinated by Michael Myers ever since. 
So why don't we start up the discussion by discussing Michael Myers himself? As you said, Laurie, in this one, unlike in many of the sequels, and as we'll get to in the remake, he is an average build, an, an average height, average body type. He's not like this big, looming, hulking, bodybuilding stuntman. It could be anyone beneath that mask. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read somewhere, probably on the IMDb, that John Carpenter wrote him specifically the way he did without backstory because he didn't want you to sympathize with the character. You're not supposed to sympathize with the serial killer and the one who's going to kill you, you know? Yeah. And that goes back to my point earlier about the people making these remakes not understanding where the original writer came from. Yeah. What I liked about Michael is that you don't get a sense that he came from a broken home or that he was troubled or anything like that. He was just a normal kid in the normal suburbs, normal family, who just one day became what he is now. And there's so much mystery to that. You know, these days we feel like we have to explain everything. Oh, it's movies. Oh, it's video games that are making kids do this. No. You know, sometimes people just are not what we would consider normal or decent or good. You know, and they'll scapegoat media to make themselves feel better because it's way too frightening to think, no, this person's just not right. See, and then there's also the motivation for why he hunts down Lori and her friends is I know the second film in the series set up the aspect that she's his sister. But if you just go based on the first film, it's just entirely because she went up to the front door of his house and put a key under his carpet. Mm-hmm. He noticed her and then started following her around, and she suddenly became the center of his entire plot for the end, and you don't know why. It's just she happened to be the one that he targeted. Yep. And we pointed this out in our last episode of Salt and Precinct 13, that Carpenter is a master of giving you just enough information to suggest that there's depth there so that it doesn't feel like an empty film, but he won't always fill you in on the details. So it's left ambiguous that people can fill in those details however they want to. Yep. Well, I mean, even in the credits, because they have Michael Myers, age six, Michael Myers, age 23, and then the shape. Well, so, age 23 is just that actor for that one moment when his face was exposed. No, but I mean, like, if you wanted to take it that way, you could just be like, okay, well, it's completely different people. Like, mm. That he never is one person. Yeah. He's the boogeyman. Exactly. That's what I loved. It's like Michael Myers is quite literally the boogeyman. Yes. It's like it could be anyone. I love the little kid in the clown costume at the beginning was just. Mm. Yeah, just such an innocent image with a bloody mm-hmm. butcher knife. Although I do love, like, John Carpenter has those kind of moments where everyone just seems to freeze as he pulls away. Yeah, that that was one of the few awkward bits of the parents just standing there. They're not yeah. asking their kid anything. They're not looking at anything. But that's almost where a bit of the fairy tale aspect comes in. As you exactly. Know, it's fading to the modern day, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, if you're not going with the movie, then you're probably going to bitch about it. If you are, well, then you're not going to mind. Mm-hmm. And Michael Myers, his costume is just so amazing, the simplicity of a painted white William Shatner mask over a mechanic's jumpsuit. Yeah. And what I love is it's kind of so hard to look at it from the eyes of a first-time viewer, but it almost seems to be trying to suggest in those early bits where you only really see him from a distance, from the neck up, Mm -hmm. that he's not wearing a mask, that he's a pale-faced guy with dark eyes. And Mm -hmm. it's only as we get into the later moments that you actually get to see that, no, he is wearing a rubber mask. And then even when his face is exposed, it's just a blank, pale face, just like under the mask. Anyways. Well, I think it's definitely helped because the eye holes in the mask are so small. So and they actually it, widened them. 
Yeah. Really? Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the Shatner mask had eyelids, and they just took the lids off. Oh, okay, yeah. I think this is like one of the few ones where you don't see his eyes. And some of the sequels, they actually did make it so you could see his eyes clearly through the mask. And it's so much more haunting when you only really get a distant look at this guy and you don't know. He's staring right at you, but you can't see his eyes. It's just so haunting. Well, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it's said that eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be a soulless killer. Why are we seeing his eyes? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because then you're just seeing the man behind the mask instead of the anonymity the mask creates. Exactly. Why don't we move on to uh, Laurie Strode, our heroine? So much is made of the belief that, you know, she's the virgin, so she's the savior in the end versus her friends who have sex and drink. But what I liked was listening to the commentary. Deborah Hill says it's not so much that she's a virgin, but that she's more mature than her other friends, and thus she's more aware of her surroundings. She's the one who always stops and notices Michael in the distance, and her friends just kind of brush it off before going to talk more about their boyfriend. Mm -hmm. She's the one who's noticing her surroundings. She's the one who's processing it and actually thinking about things. And also she takes care of those kids. Yes, and she takes good care of her kids. She's like the best babysitter in the world. (laughs) Yeah, well, the thing is... She's not only taking care of the kid that she's babysitting, but a kid she's not babysitting. Yes. Yep. And I'm and like, Tommy. that's damn good. And then what I love is that she's also not infallible. You even have the bit where Tommy sees Michael and she dismisses that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she's not perfect. And what I love about the whole big climax is I, I saw some criticism from a couple of my friends that she is kind of the screaming heroine who just kind of lucks her way through situations instead of pulling a, a Nancy Thompson and actually mm-hmm. thinking and plotting and strategizing. But what I liked is that it felt real. Exactly. She was in shock because this dude with a knife was coming at her who just killed her friends. So it makes sense that, yes, she is thinking in the moment. Yeah. But she's still freaking out in a very naturalistic way. The way that she would cry and you'd hear her cry, it sounded so real. I'm like, it wasn't theatrical crying. That felt like genuine terror. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then like you get the scene with him attacking her while she's in the closet. She pokes mm-hmm. him in the eye with a wire hanger. He drops his knife, so she stabs him with the knife. That so easily could come off clumsy. It doesn't have the slickness of a lot of modern-day slasher films, but it feels so real that, yeah, you would grab whatever you have around you, a wire hanger, attack him in his most vulnerable spot. He drops his weapon, so instantly turn the weapon on him. Mm-hmm. But then she drops the knife a couple of times, and that is kind yeah. of ridiculous. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, in the commentary, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is even like, I don't understand why she keeps leaving the knife. <laughs> Hold on to the knife, yes. It does feel a little forced of, yes, she has to always toss the knife away in disgust. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought Jamie Lee Curtis did a great job. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, she was like- brilliant. She felt so natural. She really, like, you know, where everyone wants that every girl that she's supposed to be. That's exactly like what she is. Her. She's the girl. She is the girl next door. Yeah. Her. And I think the only other one that you can find would be like Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street. Differing degrees of acting talent, but they feel like real teenagers. Yes. And she was 18 at the time. So she would have been a real teenager. I think she was the only one of the three girls who was still in her teens. Yeah. Because I believe Nancy Loomis and PJ Souls were already in their 20s. Yeah. So let's talk about Nancy Loomis and PJ Souls as Annie and Linda. (laughs) I love Annie's misadventures with the popcorn butter. Yeah. (laughs) And then just getting stuck trying to climb out of a window. Uh, It's like, oh, Annie. (laughs) It's like she's supposed to be the sassy leader of the trio. Mm -hmm. And yet she's the one who kind of like becomes the screwball bungling humor. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, she just didn't have a very good evening. (laughs) 
Yeah. Though I, I know that people have made much of the fact that, you know, she gets butter on herself and she takes her clothes off. I'm like, yeah, but if she got butter all over her clothes, like even if it splashes up on your shirt and your pants, you're like, that's it. I'm out of all of this. <laughs> I wouldn't even care if it was someone else's house. I'd be like, I'm finding new clothes. I mean, yeah, I, I applaud Carpenter for that scene where it didn't really feel too much like TNA. He held that shot from a distance, so it did feel like a very natural moment of, yeah, she's going to peel off her clothes, grab whatever's nearby, and head out to the washing machine. Well, and the thing is, you don't get a tit shot. You get her naked back. So, exactly. Which I guess nowadays, if you're Miley Cyrus, is the end of the world, but... <laughs> oh my god, it's her back, you guys! <laughs> yeah, no, what I liked about that entire sequence is that it's played for laughs. It's not played up as TNA exploitation. Exactly. Yeah, like he said in the uh, commentary, he really just needed to get her from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And point B just happened to be a laundry room. And that was the best way he could think of, he and Deborah Hill could think of to get her there. Yeah. To be honest, the entire incident and going out to the laundry room and then coming back is filler. It doesn't really add anything to the narrative except to just see that Michael is watching her. But it's such amusing filler that it it works so well. And then I just love that Lindsay has to come out and, and help her get her foot out of the rack so she can get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Lindsay's like, you got stuck. You even get the feeling that Michael thought she was so pathetically helpless that I can't kill her while she's there. What's that going to do about my reputation? <laughs> <laughs> you just see Michael going like, no, I can't do that. It's, it's so sad. Yeah. Come back later. <laughs> and then her death scene where she goes out to the car where he's hiding in the back, which is surprisingly done in a very different way than the, uh, the guy hiding in the back moment from Assault on Precinct 13, mm-hmm. where I love the added touch of his breath has fogged up the windows of the car. Mm-hmm. And she just notices that right before he attacks her. That's where that little detail of realism comes in. Although he had to have been in there for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> Yes, unless... He's unless... a heavy breather, though. Like, if you notice on the soundtrack, he's a really heavy breather, so... True. Well, it is also supposed to be October, so the air outside is going to be a little colder, which might help fog it up more. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> That's what she said. That's what I'm going to go for. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have PJ Souls as Linda, who is the TNA. Yeah. But again, she's PJ Souls, so she's so much fun that it doesn't feel all that cheap. And her and her boyfriend, Bob, who just want to screw. Yeah. And someone else's house, no less. It, yeah. Well, you know what? At least she's smart about it. And it's just like, well, I'm not picking up the phone. <laughs> Boy, it's not her house. Like, yes, she can screw in someone else's houses, but she does not pick up the phone. Yeah. So it's not like True. anyone's going to call the house and be like, who the hell are you? Someone who's totally having sex in your house. What's up? Totally. The old babysitting tactic of give your kid to another babysitter so that you and your friends can screw in the other person's master bedroom. I hope she planned on changing the sheets. Yeah. Because I think that's something that would be noticed. Yeah, that would be a wet spot to discover. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think these teenagers thought that far ahead. No. Probably not. One thing that always felt like a bit of a missed opportunity was that you have the moment where her and her boyfriend are making out on the couch and Michael is watching them. Mm-hmm. And that's very reminiscent of the scene where he was looking through the window watching his sister and her boyfriend on the couch. Mm-hmm. So you would almost think that, you know, he's seeing them as a representation of his sister. But yet it's Annie who is the one who's put beneath the tombstone of Judith. Yeah. It felt a little odd that they would set up this moment that's so replicating the past murder. And yet he ties the other one to the character of Judith. It just it, yeah. that one struck me as a little bit of an odd I don't entirely want to say it's a missed opportunity because maybe he didn't want to go the obvious route there. Well, plus Linda's a blonde and Annie's a brunette, so it could have just been hair color. True. Okay. 
And then we have, of course, the deaths of Linda and Bob. Bob, that infamous scene where he's held up and then pinned to the wall with the butcher's knife. Oh, that was brutal. While Michael just stands there looking at him, tilting his head side to side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like trying to understand. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That and the actor, I don't know what it was that he did with his, like, like it's just the, his feet acting, I guess. Yes. It, it's, <laughs> his toes. It's so, it's so good. He's a brilliant foot actor. Yeah. <laughs> he went on to do many, many a sandal commercial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the great bit where Michael then takes his glasses and puts them over a ghost sheet mm-hmm. and then goes up into the room pretending to be the boyfriend even though he's just standing there not saying anything. And then Linda just getting pissed off at him and going to call Lori. You don't know what Michael Myers is thinking. Yeah. I love this, that there is no real reason or method to his madness. It feels so random, but not random in a way that doesn't feel like they didn't think about it. It random in a way that leaves you uncertain as to what force you're dealing with. Exactly. What was his purpose behind going up there disguised in the ghost sheet if he doesn't end up really doing anything until Until she has her back is turned? Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly, because it's like he gives her a chance to call someone before he does something. You get the idea that he's not really thinking it out. Well, unless he realized she was calling Lori. I don't think he does, though. Well, yeah. See, again, it's trying to apply method to the madness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that Lori, of course, hears it and thinks it's another dirty phone call, where, which like Annie gave her earlier in the film with the heavy breathing mm-hmm. and the chewing sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's surprising about this film is how little actual on-screen violence there is. Yeah. I mean, you have the strangling there with the phone card. You have him cutting Annie's throat, but you never see any blood from it. The only time you really see the impact of a knife is when he stabs Bob. And even then it's in shadow and there's no like blood squirting out or anything. Or, you know, in the beginning with Judith. But again, you don't see any blood. Exactly. You see the knife going down, but you never see it make contact. Yeah. I'm guessing this is just because of the uh, MPAA at the time, which is not letting that much stuff. It could also have been budgetary limitations. That could be too, yeah. Save money on makeup and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, plus, you know, it's surprising how little blood there actually is in a film that is labeled a splatter film like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, there's blood in it, but it is not as much as people commonly remember. Yeah. And I think that was, again, also because they were saving money on, like, cut makeup and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I think this was also before Tom Savini kind of came and revolutionized the slasher film makeup scene. Yeah, because he, he came and did... Um... Well, he was doing Dawn of the Dead, but I don't think he started doing slashers until Friday the 13th, right? Or was the Prowler before that? Prowler was after that. Yeah, Prowler, The Burning, they're all after Friday the 13th. Yeah, I think that was kind of the one that really started focusing on the impact. The knife coming in contact with the victim. Yeah. Or axe or arrow or... And me napping through the impact of that because I was so not into that movie. (laughs) Yeah. I like the first one. First one's fine. I like part six too. (laughs) Oh, the Friday the 13th series. Well, the Halloween series has some stinkers, which we'll get to. (laughs) Oh, God. Yes. Why don't we talk about Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis? He's first build, not in it that much. He was the biggest name. Yeah. Yeah. Probably there for a week of filming. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had five days on set. Mm. He is quite good. Though. There's one scene where um, you've got kids going up to the Myers house. Yes. And he pulls out, a little, which is such a random thing to do. He pulls out the scary voice from the bushes to scare him away. Yeah, it's like, it's such a random thing to do. But it's even in that moment of all of these things are really, really super serious. He still does that. Yeah, it's a nice little moment of humor. And I love that even he has a smile over it. Yeah. It's one little moment of lightness in this entire big climax. 
And then Brackett gets him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Evie, do you recognize Sheriff Brackett from our last episode? I think I do, but I don't. He was Stryker in Assault on Precinct 13, the, the federal prison transport guy. Oh, I really loved that guy when he died. <laughs> was he the one that Napoleon used as a human shield? Yep, that was him. Oh, he was the best human shield. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't die in this one, so there you go. Him and Nancy Loomis, both Carpenter worked with previously on Assault. And then, of course, the little girl who played Lindsay is the younger sister of, what's her name, Kim Richards, from Assault on Precinct 13 in the Witch Mountain movies. But no, what I like about Loomis is he's not even trying to cure Michael anymore. He knows that Michael is completely beyond any hope and just wants to make sure he's locked away for the rest of his life because nothing can be done to stop him. Like he says as much. And what I love is in the commentary, Carpenter says that Donald Pleasance asked him for the final bit where he looks out the window and sees that Michael's body is missing. Do you want it done one of two ways, surprised or not surprised? Like he was expecting there to be no Michael and, and they went with the one where he wasn't surprised. Mm-hmm. He knows what this evil is and that it's been unleashed and his entire life and carrying on into the sequels, his entire life's mission now is just constantly just chasing after Michael. I kind of feel bad for Donald Pleasance that that's eventually what he became is the kind of just... He became Sam Loomis for the last decade of his career. But he also enjoyed it. He did. You have to consider five days' work. You know, that's true. A nice true. little paycheck, and, you know, you get to have some fun on a horror movie set. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. I loved his performance, even though there were a couple of, you know, very over-the-top moments. He lended gravitas to the proceedings. He lent realism to it, you know, like grounded it. Yes. I mean, yeah, he did have a few of those cheesy lines of, like, the evil is here. And one, <laughs> is, he, that, is he the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, he was, you know. But, they, but okay, he sells them that. so well. He sells them yeah, so well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like, yeah, they are cheesy, but if you have the wrong actor, they're cheesy. But yeah. he sells the lines completely. What I love is that Haddonfield doesn't seem to have more than one policeman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just Brackett and Loomis canvassing this entire neighborhood, even after they found the stolen car and after they found the whatever it was that Michael was eating in his house. And they know he's there. Yeah. And it's just these two guys who just like every 10 minutes would be, have you seen him yet? No, go, you go that way. I'll go this way. I was surprised by how few rubberneckers there were. You know, like you would think that people would come out of their houses at all the screaming yeah. Because we love there, to there, see this crap, but there was nobody that coming coming out of their houses. There was only that one bit where Lori runs up to a neighbor's house and is pounding on the door and they turn on the lights, look out the window, and then close the window and turn off the lights. Yeah. Okay, but I took that as it's Halloween, so they're just figuring it's Halloween damn prank. teenagers. Yeah. yeah, damn teenagers pulling pranks. So that's what I figured it was. Though, again, those people in that house assholes but i guess they probably just figured damn kids with their halloween pranks of being murdered yeah and this was probably budgetary too but this town is so abandoned mm-hmm. there's so many things where you see an entire street and there's like two people on it and there, there are two main characters you don't really see many background people at all the, probably the most you get is when you just see the other kids in the classroom at school Again, it could be people have either taken their kids trick-or-treating at the mall, which I don't know if they right. had them back in well, the 70s. Well, they also showed that they were doing the trick-or-treating during the day. There was that yeah, bit where Lori so sees the trick-or-treaters. Yeah, so it could just be that they're done trick-or-treating now. I know, but I kind of like that they're living in the middle of suburbia, and yet it's it's kind of empty. You're kind of abandoned. 
it's almost really off-putting by the fact that there should be people and there isn't. Right, and that actually kind of gives it even more atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we talked in Assault in Precinct 13, how he managed to isolate people in the middle of a city. Here he isolates people in the middle of the suburbs. I don't think it's quite as natural here because there technically should be more people out and, out and about, but mm-hmm. it is atmospheric. It yeah, it yeah. works. Well, that and also you think of like the suburbs, that's where you're supposed to be safe. I mean, they do have horrible murders that happen in the suburbs, but every time they happen, you have all of the people in the burbs that are just like, it doesn't happen here because they don't expect it. True. But you know, with suburbs, it's more, there's less, I want to say like robbery violence or gang violence or anything like that. In the Mm -hmm. suburbs, it's more Michael Myers. Someone snapped one day and turned on their family or something like that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's more you're going to get like a family annihilator where it's like yeah. some guy snaps and takes out his entire family and then himself. It's domestic, more domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And that usually doesn't get reported unless someone ends up dead. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. And um, we haven't mentioned the music yet. The classic Halloween music. So Damn, good. that is good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even just that great little jingle theme, but just these great stings, these great little yeah. boom. Boom, boom, boom. Things going on throughout it that just, it takes what should be a quiet film and it kind of jolts you out of what could otherwise be boring. Mm -hmm. It's such a perfect contrast to the quiet nature of how this thing is shot and it gives it so much atmosphere. It's the the heartbeat driving it. Yes. Just awesome. Well, that, and it kind of proves that you don't always need like a full orchestral score Mm -hmm. to make something good. Oh, Carpenter was always the master at that. Well, I think he did this probably by himself, and it's like, honestly, it sounds kind of like it was done on a Casio, but I don't care because it's so good. Right. If it were crappy, I'd be harping on it to high heaven, but it's so good that I don't care. Oh, also, there was one song that they did use, which yeah, was... Yeah, Don't Fear the Reaper over the scene yeah. of Lori and Annie smoking a reefer in the car. <laughs> which I love the fact that Lori, as pure and virginal as she is, she's still smoking a dube. Right. Right. She's hacking up a lung over it, but still she's smoking it. Well, it's half that she's laughing at Annie, too, so. I know. Stupid Annie. (laughs) God. Um, Anything else we want to add about this film before moving on? Any final thoughts? I think we've pretty much covered all the the good broad stuff. Yeah, I think we're good. It's such a simple film. There's so little there to discuss because it's just so tight. Yeah. It, well, it almost seems like a lot of the stuff that happens in it is, like, incidental. Like, he decides he's going to follow Lori, and then from there, he ends up uh, following Annie. Yeah. Kills her, and then kills Linda and Bob because they show up. And then Lori shows up, so he follows her over to the house. It's like, it's all so incidental. If someone had done something different, it wouldn't have happened. Right. I mean, it's like that scene with Annie and, and the laundry is, it feels like in, in another person's hand, this could feel like boring filler. Mm-hmm. And yet it feels so tied into the everyday lives of these characters. Like, you also have the scene with Tommy and the school bullies at the school, mm-hmm. which doesn't really do anything else beyond play up his fear of the boogeyman angle. The only other time you see those bullies again is when they try to sneak into the Myers house and Loomis scares him away. But even that doesn't really have any contextual tie to the earlier scene. It's more just, let's show Tommy at school getting teased about the boogeyman, and then one of the kids runs right into Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. And he just lets the kid go by. And that kid goes. Like, he looks up at him, and then he's like, and it's gone. 
Right. Yeah. And this is where this Michael Myers has slightly more personality in that he's not always just standing there stiffly. Like this one, he grabs the kid and then gently lets him go and then runs his fingers along the fence as he's walking by. Yeah. You know, you don't see him do that in any of the sequels. I have to applaud John Carpenter and Deborah Hill for the dialogue that they wrote for yeah. the, the, the three girls, especially, because that does sound like genuine teenage girl dialogue. Well, I believe he said that he mainly focused on like the Loomis dialogue and let Deborah kind of focus on the teenage girl dialogue. And she mm-hmm. kind of drew from her own teenage years and whatnot. Yeah. See, now that's smart because that did sound like maybe a little dated references or whatever but that's pretty much what my friends and i sounded like within the context of the times it still felt entirely real and believable Mm -hmm. totally yes well if we don't have anything else to really add about halloween which we all still seem to love i I don't think that's ever going to change this is just such a perfect film Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why don't we just kind of briefly go over the sequels Starting with Halloween 2, where, of course, Laurie is taken to a hospital while Michael is going about the town and finally tracks her to the hospital. And this is when we get the big reveal that... She's his sister, yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, you watch the first one, and I'm like, it's never mentioned. Like, I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, you know, we're in the first movie. I'm like, no, they never say it in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and as I said, it, taking away that revelation makes Michael so much more of an enigma of why is he doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I like about Halloween 2 is that it picks up literally the minute after part one ends as suddenly word spreads around town of what happened. And this is where you get the rubbernecking. This is where it becomes Mm -hmm. a a media sensation as everyone's freaking out. You know, you get the bit where the one kid who happens to be wearing the same mask as Michael Myers is just walking home drunk and he ends up getting killed because of it. Yeah. Which actually is supposed to be the same kid that Laurie was going to be going out with the next day. (laughs) Really? I'm like, oh. no day for you, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> My problem with two is that so much of it is just set in this empty hospital. And I would have liked to see more exploration of the town hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a bad film. It's just, it's nowhere near as tight and as striking. And it was kind of the start of, we, we got to do more of the Friday the 13th style gimmick kills. Mm-hmm. And half the people who are died are people you don't give a shit about. Yeah. It's not a bad sequel. It's one of the few sequels that I think if you enjoy the first one, it's worth checking out. Right. And then we get Halloween 3, which of course was <laughs> them trying to turn Halloween into an anthology series. So it's a whole story about killer Halloween masks. It <laughs> With part of um, Stonehenge and also computer chips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. What the hell? God, I I would have loved to have read Nigel Neal's original script. It was originally written by Nigel Neal, who wrote all the old Quatermass movies, Mm -hmm. which I'm a huge fan of. Unfortunately, he disliked where it went so much that he took his name off of it. Mm -hmm. I kind of like the film at times. I just recently watched Fright Night 2, which was also written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Wallace is, for like everything that is conceptually strong and executed well, there's like three things that are just so bizarre. And why would you do that? And why would you do it that way? (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. It's like there's some good stuff in that movie. And I actually like the idea of turning the series into an anthology. But Mm. this was not the best second outing to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Halloween came out in 1978. Then we got Halloween 2 in 1981. And then we got this in 1982. And then we didn't get another one until 1988. Right. Well, (laughs) 
it's not entirely surprising that part three kind of left a bit of a stigma there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then we get Halloween part four, where we get the character of Jamie, played by Daniel Harris, where she's kind of like to the Halloween series what Alice is to the Elm Street series. Kind of the secondary protagonist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Danielle Harris is a very good child actress. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she was good in the part, and the character wasn't bad. It's just like Alice, she wasn't in the best of the movies, mm-hmm. unfortunately. The movies quite weren't up to the par of the character and the, and the actress. Mm-hmm. But Halloween 4 isn't bad. It's a very typical slasher film, and it's kind of mm-hmm. really clumsily made. And this was the first one where they brought in like a six foot four bulked up stuntman to play Michael, and he looked like he could hardly walk upstairs. He was so bulky. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, the scene where he's trying to walk around on a rooftop—he's just the clumsiest guy. It—it's uh, not bad. It's just such a pale imitation of what the series was. But it's worth checking out for Daniel Harris because I thought she she gave a really good role, and it was interesting making the you know the final girl protagonist of this slasher film be like ten years old. Exactly. You didn't see that very often. And then we have Halloween Five, where in her shock, Jamie now has a psychic connection to Michael and experiences all of his murders while he's still trying to hunt her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Halloween Five has a few good sequences. Like, there's a great one where he's chasing Jamie throughout this house, and she, like, goes and hides in a vent shaft. Mm-hmm. And it's just... Because she's so tiny. Exactly. And But then he goes to the bottom of the vent shaft, so he has, she has to go all the way back. It's, it's a really well-done sequence. But it's just such a nonsensical piece of crap. <laughs> oh, God. There's some music cues that... I think you know which. I think everyone knows which ones I'm talking about, if you've seen the movie. The, uh, the, the music cue that they have for the cops. Oh, it's been a while since I've seen part five, so I, I can't place it. It's literally like something that you would find, I guess, in like a Laurel and Hardy routine. Like it's, <laughs> it, it, it's like a whiz bang and a doo doo doo. Oh, it, it's so stupid. I, I wouldn't put no it beyond that film. That. I wouldn't put it above that film. Like yeah, Dewey's like, cue. <laughs> oh God, no! Dewey's cue is like magnificent and majestic compared to this. <laughs> He's forget Superman yeah. compared to this music cue. Like this music cue is basically telling you these guys are completely ineffective, so stupid, and fodder for Michael Myers to kill. <laughs> See, my other problem with part five is that they made the same mistake they did with part two of Jamie Lee Curtis's character was so great in the first one, but in the second one, she's pretty much catatonic and spends most of the film in shock and then kind of just shambling around with Michael chasing her. They do the same thing in part five, where Jamie, who was such a great character in part four, is now in shock and having these psychic visions. And And unable to speak. Yeah, she's mainly just mute and just kind of fumbling around. And there's the great bit there where he's finally chasing her through the house, and then, then it becomes good. But up to that point, it's just completely nonsensical. And then mm-hmm. there's a bit where he takes off his mask, and him and her have the same eyes. <laughs> don't, don't, I don't care. Yeah. Technically, uh, though, it wasn't... Laurie Strode doped up in the second one, though? Didn't they sedate her? Yeah, she was sedated and she was in shock. But it still takes up so much of the film that yeah. that's all we get of her for that most the majority of the movie. So much of the focus is put elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It just kind of feels like a bit of a waste of her character. At least she wasn't having psychic visions connecting her to Michael. <laughs> if they'd thought about it, they would have put it in there. Yeah, and then we have part six, The Curse of Michael Myers, where we find out about this entire <laughs> druidic cult that is trying to get a new baby that they can pass on the spirit that's inhabiting Michael into. This, this was kind of like Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday where they were trying to build this deep mythos <laughs> and like completely doing it in all the wrong ways. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> and then they take the character of Jamie. She's played by a different actress, and then she's like dead within 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Completely waste her. It's it's one of Paul Rudd's first films. Yeah, that's about that's all I can really the... be said about it. Exactly. Yeah, it's not badly uh, shot, but it's just it's yeah. such a mess of a movie. It's literally like they just took fragments of screenplays, stapled them all together, and were like, "We got one." Yeah. I just I no just yeah. no Mr. <laughs> Superman no home. <laughs> and then we have Halloween H two O. Which I actually quite like. Me yeah, too. Here. It has a few clunky bits, but it feels like a good return to the original. Mm-hmm. You look back on it, and now it just seems so cliched and tired, and you've got Josh Hartnett, mm-hmm. and uh, Kevin Williamson, I believe, wrote it, and it's just, you've got that self-aware scream thing about it. Well, Williamson only did the original outline for it. He only did the outline? Okay. Because yeah. it, it definitely felt like a scream film. I don't know if maybe that's Steve Miner's fault, but at the time, you weren't thinking about that. You're thinking, hey, yeah, what did happen to Laura? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, but you know, I've actually recently watched it back to back with the first film, and I do think it captures a lot of the same atmosphere. The way the teenagers talk actually feels more reminiscent of the original film than it does kind of the, the, the scream snark. If, I mean, there's a bit of that, mm-hmm. but it but it feels a lot like when the kids are walking down the street talking, they feel a lot like Laurie, Annie, and Linda talking. It does get a little gimmicky, but then when you get to the big final confrontation between Laurie and Michael, I think it's it's a perfect ender for the series. Plus, honestly, uh, I... Well, <laughs> well, there's so much that Jamie Lee Curtis does in that movie, too. Yeah. And yes, Laurie turns into, like, an alcoholic and everything. I'm like, well, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. She found out that this killer who killed all of her friends and a whole bunch of people in the hospital was her brother. It's like, and was basically coming after her for reasons that she could never quite yeah. figure out. So she's like, drinking it is. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I'm not saying it's a perfect film. It's not. But it's not one that I consider to really be a disappointment. Yeah. If they had left it, if they hadn't done Retribution or whatever it's called. Yeah, we'll get to that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I think it would have been brilliant. Yeah, it would it would have been a great capture series. And as I've told other people, you can almost dismiss all the sequels and just do one, two, and H two O, and you exactly. get a nice little trilogy there. Yeah, it's not a perfect trilogy, but it's a good story. Yeah, well, if you're going to go beyond the first one, because if you don't go beyond the first one, yeah, then if you, you don't beyond, have yeah. to. But right. well, exactly, because the thing is, even the movie itself, like even H two O, doesn't really acknowledge any of the sequels. Right. Yeah. Like, they never acknowledged the character of Jamie at all, even though she's supposed to be Laurie's daughter. Yeah, which I was fine with. I'm like, okay. And then we have Halloween Resurrection. You know what? I'm glad someone looked at the Halloween series and was like, you know what we need? Busta Rhymes. We need Busta Rhymes. <laughs> and Tyra Banks. Busta Rhymes doing karate roundhouse kicks to Michael Myers. Yep. Here's the thing about Halloween Resurrection, is if you just take out the fact that it's Michael Myers... It's actually kind of a funny little horror satire of the whole reality TV movement of let's do a reality TV show in a haunted house that just happens to have a serial killer in it. Mm-hmm. it. It's kind of entertaining if you can separate it entirely from the Halloween series. But because they put Michael Myers in it, they kind of shot themselves in the foot because it's just, yeah. it's, it shouldn't be a part of this series. And then the the entire opening sequence of let's just <laughs> let's just take out Laurie in, in an insane asylum. Didn't Jamie Lee say that she would come back, but only if Laurie was killed? Yeah, well, I mean, by then she's probably like, come on, we just, we decapitated the guy in the last film. (laughs) Well, the thing is, the reason that they decapitated him in the last film was so that would be the last one. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
But then we find out that, no, Michael switched costumes with the uh, ambulance operator. <laughs> that Michael Myers is known for planning ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? Apparently she gave them more time because she liked what they did with the character of Laurie, which I'm like, well, they gave her a good death. But the rest of the movie is like, yeah, if you had just done that as a short film, that would have been If fine. you had just done it as its own movie, which is like a completely different serial killer, yeah. it would have been a nice entertaining film. It's just tying it, to, which I, I believe, I think it was originally written as a separate thing. <laughs> and then Probably. they kind of reworked the script into the sequel. I was actually going to ask. I don't know that for a fact. I, I, I just believe I remember hearing that at some point. It doesn't surprise me because so many sequels to things start out as their own thing. Yeah, because yeah, I'm like, it does not. Resurrection is the one that feels like it's sort of trying to ride the coattails of Blair Witch because of the whole... Well, it was the whole self-referential aspect. Yeah, Scream and Blair Witch and all that stuff. Right. As opposed to anything that had to do with Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just can't remember it because there were those shows like America's Scariest Places or that one on MTV where they take Z-list celebrities and stick them in supposedly haunted places. <laughs> a lot of hidden night vision cameras all over the place. And let's, of course, rig up the place to make spooky sounds and creak doors to freak people out. Imagine if you stuck a serial killer in that who starts picking off the contestants one by one. I suddenly get very, very happy because I hate all the contestants. <laughs> Yay. I remember the one where Gary Busey was on, and he got so into it that he was trying to create his own seances to try to calm the spirits of the building. Oh, Gary Busey. Oh, boy. Oh. I feel bad for that guy. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to bring part one to a close here. That's what she said. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this, Lori. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay. Good night, Evie. I ate a squirrel. Good night. <laughs> To read show notes for this and every one of our episodes, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.com. The comment sections are open, so let us know what you think about the films discussed. I Hate Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Love Remakes is a Made of Fail production. Madeoffail.net. We were unpopular before it was cool.